in our series on Mount Thessalonians, we're not actually going through the letter verse by verse. What I'm trying to do is to highlight various themes, just in case the uh, people who are studying 1 Thessalonians in the house groups get bored. You see, I do think of you. And the theme I want to highlight this morning is the way in which ordinary people like you and me get on together when we live in close proximity, when we rub shoulders together. How do we get on together? How do we overcome the grit that sometimes causes problems? I love what Billy Graham has to say about perfect churches. He says, if you find a perfect church, don't join it, because you'll spoil it. You see, churches are full of imperfect people, but that's not all there is to say. There's a way in which we can live with imperfections. Have you ever noticed when you're walking along an uneven surface, no matter how careful you are, somehow those little stones, those little pieces of grit, have a, an ability to jump from the surface you're walking on straight into your shoe. And all of a sudden you realize you've got a stone in your shoe. And you think, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll jiggle it about so it's under the instep so I can't feel it. And, and you realize that you'll get no comfort or ability to walk um, effectively until you stop, take your shoe off, shake out the piece of grit, and then you can walk safely. Well, how do we deal with the grit that sometimes causes problems in the Christian fellowship? I want to highlight three sources of grit this morning. And the first is perhaps the commonest one, unfair criticism. If it comes from the right motive, of course, criticism can be a very positive thing. After all, if, 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 if someone is doing something wrong, it's hardly kind not to point it out. But it's got to be pointed out in the right way. We've got to love those we criticize. And we've got to criticize from love. Simply trying to tear people down and humiliate them has no place whatsoever in the Christian fellowship. And Paul had to do with a great deal of, of, of criticism. Not only had he had a very, very hard and difficult time in Philippi where he faced the opposition of the Roman authorities. He'd been thrown into prison unjustly. He had to face the violent and vicious attacks sometimes of the Jews. And if you look at chapter 2, the passage that Brenda read to us, you'll see right at the very beginning there that he talked about strong opposition there in verse 2. We have previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Now, his enemies accused him of a whole number of things. First of all, of impure motives and trickery. That's verse 3. Then of being a man-pleaser, of currying favor with people. That's verse 4 of flattering people and wearing a mask to cover his greed, verse 5. And then, 
fishing for compliments. And he rebuts all those criticisms, vigorously refutes them. And in verse 7, he contrasts how he could have behaved towards the Thessalonians and how he did behave. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. You see, Paul and Silas and Timothy were apostles of Christ. They had a right to expect support from the Christian believers, but they didn't insist upon it. Have a look at verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel to you. And he says in verse 8, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel but our lives as well because you had become so dear to us. Why was Paul criticized? Where was the criticism coming from? Well, you know, I believe that the real source was jealousy. Paul had a, a mighty ministry, didn't he? He had that wonderful experience in Philippi. And in a sense, I envy him that, that experience in Philippi. Being able, when you're in the middle of the prison, to sing and then to be saved from the earthquake, and then to see all those people coming to faith, and to leave in Philippi just a, a bright, wonderful, effervescent group of Christians. Paul had a, 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 such a wonderful relationship with the Philippians. But I'm sorry, we're not talking about Philippians this morning, are we? We're talking about Thessalonians. He had just as good a time. Went on to Thessalonica, preached Three, three, three Sabbath days, established the church. He had a wonderful time there. And some of the leaders of the Jews were very, very jealous. And jealousy is a subtle temptation. And it comes to us all. I've had to deal with it again and again and again in my ministry. People with whom I trained, they've gone on to have spectacular ministries. They've been convention speakers, they've been raised to positions of leadership in the church, and what's happened to me? I've just beavered away as an ordinary minister. Inevitably, you ask, what about me? Why isn't it happening to me? I don't know whether you remember, in the 1970s, there was a little book published written by a French Roman Catholic priest called Michel Coist. It was called Prayers of Life. It was a wonderful book. It was a book of dialogues with God. And what he had done was picked ordinary things, ordinary everyday things, a five-pound note, uh, um, someone's bald head, um, and a brick. Other things, too, to illustrate the way in which God works in our lives. He was watching a bricklayer one day, laying a bed of cement very carefully, very skillfully, and then gently putting a brick on top of this bed of cement, tamping it down, making sure it was in the right place, and then very swiftly laying another bed of cement and putting another layer of bricks on top, and gradually the wall grew and grew and grew, and 
The original brick was lost in the foundations of the building. Nobody thought about it. But it was doing its job. And all the other bricks around it needed it. And Kois asks, as the prayer finishes, what does it matter where in God's building I am, whether I'm down in the foundations or up near the roof, as long as I'm in the place he put me and I'm doing the job he wants me to do. If you ever feel jealous of another Christian, just remember the brick. Okay, well, if the grit of unfair criticism can cause trouble, so can the sharp stone of insensitive behavior. Of course, we have to keep a balance and not get upset about foolish things. Back to custard Christians who get upset over trifles. But have a look at verses 10 and 11. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Encouraging, comforting, and urging. It's a good strategy, isn't it? But you see, comforting doesn't only mean making people feel better. It doesn't. Because it comes from a Latin word, fortis, come fort. Fortis, which means strength. And actually, comfort means to strengthen people, to stiffen their resolve. So to be sensitive doesn't always mean being kind-hearted and tender. Real sensitivity knows how to challenge. If you love someone, you really love them, and you want them to improve, You'll challenge them, won't you? That's what God does with you and with me. He doesn't pat me on the head and say, oh, Charles, you're doing it so well. Oh, yes, oh, you're a dear old thing. You're a dear. He says to me now, face up to this in your life. Realize that this is unacceptable. Realize that you're being dishonest about this. A verse from Psalm 51 comes to me again and again and again and again. Behold, thou desirest truth, in the inward parts, therefore te teach me wisdom in my secret heart. And a wonderful verse in Deuteronomy. Um, yes, Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's verse 2. Remember all the way in which the Lord thy God led thee through the wilderness these 40 years to humble thee, to test thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst obey his commandments or no. He challenges us. Of course he does. Because he loves us. So a genuinely sensitive person will gently uncover the excuses and face a loved one with reality. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now one of the uh, least understood um, ministries of the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Holy Spirit, is the gift of prophecy. It seems, doesn't it, that word seems to indicate that it's all about predicting something that's going to happen. But in the New Testament, it's used in a much wider context than merely looking into the future. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 6, for instance, instead of translating the Greek word prophetia as prophecy, the 
New English Bible, which is probably the most scholarly of the modern translation, translations, renders it inspired utterance. In other words, when the New Testament talks about prophecies, not just telling us uh, or warning folk about what God has in store for them, it's about sharing a word which comes directly from the Holy Spirit. Have you ever opened an oven and forgotten the oven glove or perhaps not worn it properly and grasped a hot dish in the oven? You know pretty soon, don't you, to let go. Well, words from the Holy Spirit should be treated like that. They're white hot because they come from our God who is a consuming fire. Because they're so important, messages like that must be treated with great care, great care. Because if they're not, if they're not tested, then one of two things are likely to happen. Either the church might miss something absolutely vital that God is saying to them, or second, someone might bring a spurious message, something that misleads people and sends them off in the wrong direction. And so the final piece of grit that I want to identify this morning is the result of misunderstanding prophecy. And Paul has a word to say about this. Look at chapter 5 and verses 19 and 21. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Test everything. From what he says at the beginning of chapter 5, it appears you see that some people were confused about the whole matter of the Lord's coming, and in particular, exactly when it would take place. Paul says the date is irrelevant because it will happen when they least expect it will come, as he, you see, as he says in verse 2, like a thief in the night. Now, treating prophecies with contempt and failing to test them leads to misunderstanding and mistakes. And it would seem that because they were confused about when Jesus would come back. They just knew it might be soon. They thought, well, what's the point in going on working for my living? I mean, if Jesus is going to come back this afternoon, or perhaps tomorrow morning, or next Tuesday at the very latest, well, I don't have to go into work on Monday morning, do I? I put my feet up. I just wait for Jesus to come back. No, says Paul. Chapter 4, verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win respect of outsiders and that you will not be dependent upon anybody. That was one of the things that was happening to the Thessalonian church. And then chapter 5 and verse 14, and we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Warn those who are idle. You see, there were Jews and Gentiles in this little church in Thessalonica, and some of the Gentiles, probably most of them, before they came to Christ, had been involved in very immoral lives. They'd been immersed in idolatry and the occult, and like all young Christians, they were vulnerable. And when they were idle, living in idleness, in kind of wrong expectation of the Lord's imminent return, they might be tempted to slip back into their former way of life. And so Paul says, 
in verse 4 of chapter 5. You brothers are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're all sons of the light, sons of the day. We don't belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. So the expectation of the Lord's imminent return is not an excuse for idleness. And, you know, even today, we can make that mistake. We don't have to witness, really, to the world, because the Lord Jesus is coming back very, very soon, so we we can leave everybody to their faith. No, that's not the New Testament way. The Lord Jesus is indeed coming back, and coming back when we least expect. But that's no excuse for idleness. Where does all this leave you and me? Well, if you don't see the Bible as God's revealed word, as I believe we do here, you may be tempted to follow the general line that's peddled today, And that's sad to say is that many folk, even in positions of leadership in the church, have just given up expecting Jesus to come back in a physical form. Now, as we shall see next week when we look at the second part of chapter 4, Paul is quite specific about what's going to happen. And that piece of prophecy most definitely is about something that's going to happen in the future. But today, not everyone takes him seriously. Well, friends, I do take him seriously. I don't think I could live my Christian life if I wasn't living in expectation of the Lord's return. He's promised to return and he's never gone back on his word. We don't know when it will happen. All we know is that he will. As I say, we'll look at that more closely next week, but rest assured of this, he keeps his promises. So the message is simple. Get rid of the grit. No more unfair criticism. No more insensitive behavior. No more twisting, misunderstanding, ignoring, failing to test God's word so that the Holy Spirit's messages get distorted. Next week, Remembrance Sunday, we shall tackle the second part of chapter 4. And that's one of the most exciting and stimulating parts of the whole New Testament because it gives us a very clear picture of what will happen the moment when the Lord Jesus returns. And that is so exciting. I can hardly contain myself.